I'm Emily Renneberg, and this is Even Strength. Many hockey fans remember when Sidney Crosby, the face of superstardom in the NHL, was diagnosed with his first concussion in the National League. Just under a year after he scored Canada's golden goal against Team USA in the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, he was first hit in the head during an outdoor game in 2011. He got up, he skated away, and he didn't miss a game. Four days later, he took another hit to the head, and he didn't play another game that season. He returned just under a year later and played a total of eight games, but was again pulled from the lineup after feeling concussion symptoms and discovering a soft tissue neck injury. He came back in March and played relatively healthy until October 2016, where he suffered another concussion, this time during a team practice, but he bounced back within the month. He remains a dominant player for the Pittsburgh Penguins today and still one of the biggest stars in the NHL. But with what we know now about concussions, his story could have been significantly different had it not been for Dr. Ted Carrick, the pioneer of functional neurology and a Canadian chiropractor. He created the Carrick Institute for Graduate Studies and is the name behind Crosby's concussion success. Treatments are highly tailored to the individual and use physical testing to understand where the concussed person is experiencing issues with their brain function. His approach has skirted the mainstream and has been met with some criticism, some confusion, and a lot of curiosity. The traditional approach to concussion treatment is the rest and wait approach, but Crosby had been seeing multiple specialists for months without any promising results. Dr. Carrick had him back on the ice 10 days after his first meeting with Crosby, and he was then cleared for contact three and a half weeks later. This was significant progress. His influence and teachings brought functional neurology to the hands of today's guests, who studied under Dr. Carrick on top of her profession as a chiropractor. She's also now the founder of Calgary Brain and Spine. Hi, I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely. I'm a chiropractor, and I practice functional neurology and functional medicine. I've always been super interested in women's health. And so I have essentially two areas of specialty within my, within my work. And um, one is that I take care of women with hormonal challenges. And just about 10 years ago now, I started studying with Dr. Ted Carrick, who is, we call him the, the godfather of functional neurology. And he's quite well known in the sporting world as the lead of the team that got Sidney Crosby back on the ice after those two back-to-back concussions in 2011. And when I first started studying with Dr. Carrick, thinking I was taking a weekend class, it would be kind of cool, like brain stuff was kind of cool, right? And it was just like, I saw stuff that weekend and heard about things that I did not think was even possible. And I thought, well, you know what, this is kind of cool. I should really investigate this a little further. And so I did. And I continued to study with Dr. Carrick in the Carrick Institute and, um, and a few others since then. And um, so almost 10 years later, this is a specialty that I'm working with in my practice, which is to fix broken brains, specifically concussed brains. Starting her undergrad in journalism in Regina, she was pulled into another direction and completed her bachelor's in archaeology and anthropology. But during a field study course at the University of Calgary, chiropractic became the next part of her academic and personal journey. I actually wanted to be a chiropractor from the time I was first taken to a chiropractor when I was about 10. And my first chiropractor was this just fascinating woman. And I never forgot her. And when I was sort of in that mid high school years trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, my chiropractor at the time, I was having a conversation with him about what what's required to become a chiropractor. 
And he said, oh, you get to dissect cadavers' bodies. You get to put your hands inside the dead bodies. And I was just, you know, an impressionable 16-year-old and went, oh, yeah, no. Mm -mm." So I kind of took a a detour. And um, so my undergraduates in anthropology, archaeology specifically. And when I was like fourth year trying to decide where to go, like where I would do my master's or PhD, I wasn't sure where I wanted to, to continue to play. I, I met a, uh, an archaeology professor who was also a practicing chiropractor. And it's like these like worlds collided for me. And I was sort of debating. I had gotten into forensics about that time and um, crime scene stuff with the RCMP forensic unit in Regina, which is where I was doing my undergraduate. And um, so I kind of got over the gross part about bodies, I guess. I don't know. And uh, that's when I met uh, the professor at the U of C and thought, oh boy, we need to revisit this chiropractic thing. Concussion research and understanding has seen a massive increase in recent years. For some, a concussion has the ability to significantly impact a life, and repeat head injuries can be fatal. Noted names like Derek Bugard, Greg Johnson, and Ryan Friel might come to mind for some. Well, you know, I grew up in the generation where we saw Christopher Reeve was the original uh, uh, Superman. And he had an injury, a devastating spinal cord injury. Uh, sometime in the 80s, if I remember correctly, he fell off a horse and, and he was paralyzed. He became a quadriplegic. He may have had some use of his arms, but no use of his legs. And unfortunately, that that led to his demise. We didn't understand then that the brain could regenerate itself, that the neurons could regenerate themselves. We understood it in a very simple way, and we certainly didn't think it was all that possible. It was the stuff of science fiction movies. So, you know, fast forward, you know, decades later, and the brain is the next frontier, really. We know Uh, Just a fraction of actually how the brain works. But it's really sexy right now. There's a lot of research going on in in brain uh, neurodegeneration as well as um, uh, the ability for the brain to regenerate itself. So in neuroplasticity, I mean, that's ultimately what we do as functional neurologists is work with um, creating new connections in the brain. It's a nasty injury to have. Some you can rehab and you're 100%. But multiple concussions over a lot of time really can be the reason why you are in your 20s, 30s and beyond and you're struggling with depression, anxiety, uh, phobias, uh, suicidal ideations, biochemical imbalances like with the neurotransmitters. So addictions are far more common with multiple head injuries. So is uh, spousal or domestic violence, spousal abuse or domestic violence. And there's all kinds of research or evidence, I should say, especially with the professional athletes in the NFL and NHL showing those very things. And so in terms of an injury that has the ability to affect all aspects of your life, nothing quite does it like a TBI. But unfortunately, with the increase in concussion research, it doesn't mean that the equality in its research or its answers follows it too. Most TBI research is from the male perspective. Some speculate this is because the riskiest sports are usually male-dominated, but if you dig a little deeper, they found if you compare sports with similar rules, women experience concussions at a higher rate than males. 
they also experience a higher severity of symptoms that are longer lasting. And at this point, we aren't exactly sure why these things are true, but there are some popular thoughts. This is a passion project of mine. The reasoning for that, according to popular thought, is that we don't have the same strength and musculature in our necks. So let's uh, think about the mechanism of the injury here. Your brain is hollow and surrounded with fluid. So it's filled with fluid and surrounded with fluid. Think of it like an olive in a jar of brine. When you, and of course it's anchored by the spinal cord in the middle of the head that goes, of course, down into the spine, which supplies the nerves for all of your organs, your viscera, all of your tissues, your muscles, everything. So when you have an injury where your head gets struck or you strike something, or something strikes you, there's often a twisting motion of the brain inside the brain case, okay? It's called a torsional injury, and your brain twists on that spinal cord as it's anchored. Keep in mind, it's suspended in fluid. That's the cerebral spinal fluid. When that torsional injury happens, the area of the brain that's likely to get damaged is the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. And it has to be because that's just, just where those two parts of the brain sit, there's little sharp bony ridges around, okay? So if you've got that torsional force happening, now you can um, have a shear shearing injury of the tissue between the hypothalamus and the pituitary called the infundibular stalk. Now, hypothalamus and pituitary control hormones for the entire system. So if a woman has a torsional injury, and she injures a part of her brain that controls hormones, it would be fairly safe to assume that she may have some troubles with hormone regulation. And apparently gender bias isn't isolated to concussion research either. Okay, so the bias, the gender bias in research is a real deal. And it's not just neurology research, it's medical research, period. So some time ago, I believe it was in the 60s, uh, don't quote me on that, somebody can Google this and find out for yourself, medical research was being done. And of course, it was still fairly rudimentary at that, at that point too, or not as um, big of a phenomenon as it is now. And it was discovered that women's hormone levels, this fluctuation of cycles, plus the chance that we might get pregnant, could totally mess up the entire research project. And so because of that, women were eliminated for the most part from medical research. Pause on that. Can we have a, oh my God, can you believe that? And here's the thing. We have just started to bring this to light. So it hasn't even been rectified yet. So when you take a medication, the research on that medication, which basically informs your physician as to how much you should take, is likely exclusively based on the male experience in the research. Now, we understand that it takes approximately, get this, 18 years from the time research emerges to when it actually is in practice at the level of patient meeting doctor, 18 years. So the bias is not only like 18 years means now you, if you were born the moment that the research was published, by the time your doctor's talking about it, you're out of just about out of puberty and on your way to being a, a young adult. Now, before I go any further, I want to preface this discussion. 
Dr. Lovely and I had a very gendered conversation revolving around the differences between males and females in relation to TBIs, injuries, and healthcare. Males and females are sexes, which are assigned at birth and defined by specific inherited chromosomes. They are very different from gender, which is incredibly expansive and based on societal and cultural constructions and personal and perceived norms. Gender and sex is a discussion that the medical community is beginning to have, as both gender and sex are important to medicine and health, and they aren't always the same for many people. Right now, most medical research focuses on the binary male-female and the roles this binary plays in our health. So this discussion isn't designed to alienate people outside of this binary. Rather, to discuss what we know about the male and female experience in relation to their sex and what the research of the past has said about it. When having these discussions, it's important to know that the experiences of people aren't limited to their sex and that gender is a substantial part of someone's life. I want to acknowledge the infinite spectrum of gender before continuing, and I want to encourage listeners to do some digging on this too. So steps are being made, but today's episode is quite gendered with the female experience. So what does Dr. Lovely look for when practicing functional neurology with her patients? So you look at function. Uh, There's things we can measure, right? So we can look at how well a person ambulates. That's not just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other. It's highly coordinated by the brain. It's coordinated and there's a bunch of markers involved in it. How are you swinging your arms? How are you holding your head? Is one shoulder higher than the other? Are you throwing your leg on one side and dragging your foot on the other? I mean, all of those things are factors. A big one is eye movements. And that has nothing to do with visual acuity or the reason why you go to the optometrist and look at the chart. It has to do with how well the eyes move, which is not under... I mean, there is, you have the conscious ability to move your eyes, obviously. But when you're following a target, moving your eyes to target, that is primarily an unconscious thing. There's unconscious aspects of it. But uh, in the words of Dr. Carrick, eye movements touch every part of the neuraxis, meaning that every part of the brain has something to say about how the eyes move. So you can tell a lot about how a person's brain is working by how well their eyes move. Okay. Now it sounds very simplistic. There's, there's quite a bit to it. The ability to withstand uh, movement of the head and eyes in relation to the body is another way we can look at these things. Again, that's movement coordination as well. So the brain has to tell the body what to do. And it does that by sending signals through the nerves to fire different tissues, muscles, right? So there's a lot that can be looked at there. The proper terminology for a concussion is actually TBI, traumatic brain injury, or MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury. The word concussion or diagnosing somebody on a sliding scale of severity is outdated now. And we had to move away from the word concussion because, you know, we had this uh, societal understanding that a concussion was not a big deal. And that's, you know, my generations <laughs> and the ones before mine are certainly the ones to be at blame for that because. You know, you bumped your nugget, you got up, you skated it off, you fell out of a tree, quit crying, keep playing, you know. We didn't understand that these injuries could be devastating. In all fairness, though, the way brains are processing information now versus 30 years ago is a very different experience. And I think that contributes somewhat to how Uh, devastating these injuries can be. So obviously you can have uh, a severe TBI where you have lost uh, consciousness and potentially even functions. 
But it's hard to make that scale mild, moderate to severe until you get to a certain level of severity. So TBI or MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury, is most of what I work with in my office. That's the kind of injury typically that you will see with sports. And this is the, I think, the difficult part about the management, the diagnosis and the rehabilitation of a concussion is that every injury is different. Even in the same person having two or three different concussions, they're different injuries. They must be managed differently. So it's hard to have a textbook answer to how do you take care of this particular concussion versus in this player over here. On top of research, recognizing and rehabilitating traumatic brain injuries properly has also been a major focal point in both major and minor sports in the last few years. In Ontario, the province is introducing Rowan's Law in July, which has a series of concussion protocols for minor sports associations and schools. This all happened after the tragic death of Rowan Stringer in 2013, who died of second impact syndrome at the age of 17 in a high school rugby game. The NHL has introduced the illegal check to the head penalty, and Hockey Canada has passed the head contact penalty. The NFL has returned to participation protocol, and if violated, carries penalties for the team. These are just a few examples. It's tragic and unfortunate that something like this has to happen for folks to really pay attention. And the second hit is always more significant an injury. So recognizing when an injury is, has happened. Now, it's a strange place to get uh, a head injury, a brain injury, a, a concussion, especially if you're in the middle of your game. Because when you have that loss of consciousness, you may not have even recognized the gap. I mean, sure, you may remember skating towards the boards and next thing you know, you're sitting on the bench, right? So sometimes it can be really obvious. Sometimes it's just a few seconds. And you should have well-trained people around you, the coaches, the trainers that are asking the right questions and making calls, not relying on the athlete to make decisions for themselves in that moment, because it's a difficult place to be. And you don't want to be the guy that goes, oh, no, my head hurts. I want to sit on the bench, right? And I hope the culture is changing around that, but that's the reality of it. But so I'm I'm happy to see that. I'm, of course, sad that it has to be a tragedy for it to happen. But that's so often the case. What happens in medicine and research is that women are compared to men as the standard. And this comparison continues when you start talking about sport, too. Take women's hockey, for example. Though the sport they play is technically called hockey, some of the rules aren't the same as it is with the men's most notably the lack of body checking. This drastically changes the way the game is played, and you can see it when you watch both versions. And many people discount women's hockey because it, quote, isn't as good as the men's. But why are we comparing apples to oranges? Well, you know, we have to create a new standard for ourselves. As we've talked about, there is the realization that so much of what sport is about is because of the historical aspects, which you may not be considering are gender biased. And so I think it's going to take wise women, innovative women, women who are, are willing to rise and be leaders. And thank goodness there are more of us now than ever and say, we're going to do this for ourselves. We're going to create this for ourselves. And here's the new standard. 
I think there's an inherent comparison when when we're saying equality. And I think applying a new standard and saying, this is what elitism looks like in this sport, work towards that. And it's based on a woman's physiology. I think it's a bigger and deeper conversation than we just want equality. I think it's a matter of really understanding that it's just, it's a different sport. I watch a ringette game and I'm blown away at how fast y'all are. (laughs) It's amazing to me. Early 2019, I had the opportunity to meet and cover the stars of the Women's Rivalry Series, where Team Canada took on Team USA at different venues around North America for a three-game series. I mentioned to Dr. Lovely that it was some of the best hockey I'd seen live. And here's, here's the key in what you just said. You just said it was some of the best hockey I've ever seen. You didn't qualify it by saying women's hockey I've ever seen. You said hockey. That's what I'm talking about. It needs to be a bigger conversation about if we have to compare, and I understand that competitive sport has a certain level of, you know, you compare yourself to others, other teams. That's how it works, right? And what I'm asking for here, is it inherently because I believe that the standard has been set? And if the standard has been set, what are the chances are that it's been set by males? And does it even equate to how women play the game, no matter what the game is. Now, this is an important point that took me years to finally put a finger on. We don't need to compare men's and women's sports. We can celebrate the athleticism and the talent of both. And we need to include female athletes when talking about the best of the best too. Christine Sinclair, Haley Wickenheiser, Penny Alexiak. They aren't just great for women. They're great athletes. I think for... A few generations now, we've allowed commercialism and capitalism to rule how we run our structures when there's a greater calling to a gentleness. So with that, we must become aware, take personal responsibility of where in our minds, in our judgments, in our conversations with others, we may be saying something negative or judgmental. Unless you've walked a mile in her shoes, you don't get to pass judgment. So why not lift each other up? So I think the take home in all of this is that we need to change the way we think about athletics, the way we approach research and medicine, and we need to understand that we can't keep comparing very different things and expecting the same results. And if you're looking for more information on Dr. Lovely and her practice, you can find out more about me and my work at my website, calgarybrainandspine.com. Thanks again for joining me today on Even Strength. Thank you to those who have subscribed to the podcast and a big thanks to the people rating it on Apple Podcast. You're the best. I have a new episode every Tuesday, so I will be back next week with some more stories and insight into the world of sports. Take care of each other. We'll see you next week.